Welcome one, welcome all, to the court of the Trashy Royals, where we assemble each week to reveal and revel in the tales of our betters behaving badly. My name is Stacy, and Alicia, what you got for us this week? Oh, droves and droves of Trashy. There's a lot of payoff in this episode, especially if you listen to our other podcasts, Trashy Divorces and Done and Done, really everything connects. This week on Trashy Royals, we're going home for the holidays as Thanksgiving week is upon us here within the United States. We hope you are having a wonderful time in the beginning of this holiday season. In this week's episode, it is a bit of joy with many Trashy Royals all involved in one home on the French Riviera, the Chateau de la Horizon. I can tell already this is going to be a pronunciation bonanza. It is. Chateau de la Horizon. There's, you don't pronounce the H, Horizon. I, I get it. And I promise it's right. I've worked hard this week on all my pronunciations. Y'all, we are going to stick around just a little bit further down from Monaco this week and go to the French Riviera, which is booming when Maxine Elliott, legend, buys a little plot of land and builds a home that is filled with so many trashy stories and so many trashy royals. This one is really a fun ride, exploring all the aristocratic connections in one tiny place on the French Riviera. There's a lot in this one, and so many spider webs to our current and connecting trashy royals future players. So many royals, so many hangers-on. Let us anon to the Chateau de la Horizon on the French Riviera for a little frolic and so much trash candy. Before the Chateau de l'Horizon, the French Riviera wasn't what we think of it as today. Today's super glittering, built up, playground for the rich, but in the beginning part of the 20th century, not like that. It was only a few years earlier when Gerald and Sarah Murphy, one of my favorite couples, made the area fashionable as a summer holiday location with their setup in Cap Dantib. They resurrected the Hotel du Cap. They built their Villa America. The Murphys and their glittering Parisian social set sort of lend a little bit of cachet to the area. Prior to the early 1920s, when the Murphys are bringing their menagerie of creative friends to the area, The French Riviera was used as a winter resort for British and Russian royalty and aristocracy. But then the United States introduced prohibition and all all the cool kids (laughs) headed to Europe. That's it. The location, though, for the French Riviera for British and Russian royalty wasn't thought to be an ideal summer destination because it was just too hot. We have seen a few of these Russians making their homes within the French Riviera through our stories. I mean, I can imagine even though it's hot in the French Riviera, it's less hot there than it is in Moscow. 
Russia at a perilous time. So, Maxine Elliott. Let's talk about her for a moment. She is on the fringes of the Gerald and Sarah Murphy set. And Maxine is, whoa, was smart and shrewd. And she realizes that once the hidden secret of the French Riviera gets out, it is going to become a haven for the rich and famous of the world. Monaco is right there. It's on the Mediterranean. It's beautiful views. It's still underdeveloped. And for the moment, the stunning beaches were basically empty. Many of the opulent homes and hotels that would soon fill the coastline hadn't been built. Sure. Maxine Elliott buys her property while it's still relatively inexpensive. She can afford it easily. Her investment will pay off in a lot of ways. It will cause Maxine Elliott, most of all, to live at the center of power, luxury, and society. And the Chateau de la Raison would be the reason Maxine would die a very wealthy woman. Now, in order to understand the significance of this home, we need to understand the significance of its owner, Maxine Elliott. She was a remarkable woman that a lot of people don't know about. She kind of goes under the radar, but never should. She's bejeweled. Maxine plays a pivotal role in the French Riviera social scene. She is a trusted confidant of important people and will, again, make herself a lot of cash in the process. She's going to buy this plot of seaside land on the French Riviera in 1930. And promptly, Maxine sets about designing and building her dream home. And this home will become the gathering point for world-famous celebrities, politicians, royals, wealthy socialites for the next set of decades. Author and biographer Mary Lovell says of the Chateau de la Horizon in her book, The Riviera Set, quote, It was the beautifully proportioned, exquisite Art Deco villa that was the stylish brainchild of American actress, society hostess, and possibly royal mistress, and certainly hugely successful investor, Maxine Elliott. Oh, I wish I could have been there. Maxine really did something amazing. Who is this Maxine Elliott? Let's introduce her. She was born, Maxine was not, with the name Maxine Elliott. She was born with the name Jessica Dermott in Maine on February 5th, 1868. Aquarius girl. Jessica, as she was born, is determined to become an actress, much to her family's dismay. At the age of 21, Jessica takes off to New York City and enrolls in drama school. And along the way in this acting training, Jessica Dermott is done and Maxine Elliott is born. It does not take Maxine, this Aquarius dreamer girl, too long to become a star. I mean, come on, she's beautiful, she's talented, she's determined. Maxine becomes a particular hit in London. And while popular and respected for her work on stage in the United States, at the time, actors aren't really considered appropriate friends for the American upper-class families, like the Vanderbilts and the Astors. That's not our kind, dear. Mm -hmm. However, in England... Things are a little different. They're basically carnies. <laughs> in America, yeah. yeah. But in England, respected actors sure. are revered. Sure. Famous stage actors and actresses 
were welcomed into society circles. Queen Victoria herself was even known to bestow knighthood and damehood on the most esteemed within the acting profession. Monarchs since Queen Victoria have continued that custom. While performing in London, King Edward VII, Bertie, strikes again, was quite taken with Maxine and asked to meet her, hmm. and the two quickly begin an affair. Mm. Maxine was also courted by William Montague, the ninth Duke of Manchester and son of Consuelo Isnaga. Oh, the spider webs in this one. So, Bertie, King Edward, wanted to assimilate Maxine into his circle, and he is going to reach out to a good friend of his to bridge the gap for Maxine to make it a little easier for her. Bertie reaches out to his friend, George Keppel. George Keppel is, of course, the husband of Alice Keppel, sure. the longtime mistress and lady love of Bertie. Is it any surprise that George Keppel and Maxine Elliott become lovers? Oh, my God. It was through the Keppels that Maxine would make the connections that would become so important and integral to her for the rest of her life. Oh, listen to this. It just reads like a who's who. During this time, Maxine would become acquainted with and accept invitations from Mrs. Cornwallis West. We know her around here as Jenny Jerome Churchill. Also, Lady Carnarvon of Highclere Castle, Lady Daisy Warwick, the Paget sisters, Lord Sandwich, the Duke of Rutland, Alfred de Rothschild, and Sir Ernest Cassell. Maxine becomes close friends with Winston Churchill. Old Winston would take Maxine to tea at the House of Commons. They also enjoy playing golf together. <laughs> Pretty impressive. We're not mm -hmm. done. Another one of Maxine's best friends was Elsie DeWolf. Elsie DeWolf was a famed interior designer to the rich and powerful. Elsie DeWolf's clients included the Windsors, Duke and Duchess, the Vanderbilts, the Fricks, the Morgans, Oscar Wilde, George Bernard Shaw, among many, many others. Elsie DeWolf was married to Sir Charles Mendel, who was a British actor, diplomat, and press attaché in Paris. A little bit of a fun fact here. Sir Charles Mendel had been educated at the Harrow School, right alongside many wealthy English aristocratic sons. In 1924, Sir Charles was bestowed a knighthood for, quote-unquote, services to the crown. These services to the crown, a little bit shady. They were actually retrieving letters being used by a gigolo to blackmail Prince George, mm. Duke of Kent. We'll be talking about his story mm -hmm. in the future. Maxine, though, we're still on her. Before she was ready to leave the United States and her career entirely, she still had some professional aspirations. Maxine Elliott does have a few short-lived marriages in the late 1800s, but it is her relationship with financier, you've heard of him, J.P. Morgan. This was a real mover and shaker, wasn't she? Maxine Elliott is legend. I don't think enough people know about her in this place that she created. We're not even close to the amount of names that are about to get dropped. Maxine, J.P. Morgan. 
This connection between the two of them changes the direction of her life more than any other. JP and Maxine, they're close friends. They're most likely lovers. More importantly, though, JP Morgan gives Maxine a lot of really valuable financial and investment advice. And Maxine was smart enough to listen to JP Morgan and... That really was primarily one of the primary reasons she became as wealthy as she did. Maxine loves the theater, though. She's going to open her own Broadway theater called Maxine Elliott's Theater (laughs) at 109 West 39th Street. This happens in 1908. She was advised to name it the Maxine Elliott Theater, but Maxine, that was not going to do. She insisted on Maxine Elliott's Theater because she wanted the name to be clear that the theater was owned and managed by her, not just named in honor of her. Like the concept of a woman running her own theater at that time was basically unheard of. Impressive as all of that is, Maxine, her acting career and theater career isn't really as interesting as her life on the French Riviera. So let's get to it. Holy cats. Once she built the Chateau Maxine would entertain everybody, celebrities, politicians, royalty. So I want to take you to 1910, when King Edward VII, Bertie, passes away. When this happens, the social scene in London and throughout English aristocratic circles drastically changed. The next king in line, King George V, son of Bertie, Second son, not Prince Albert Victor, who was not Jack the Ripper, but George V comes in. And George V is kind of the polar opposite of his father when it comes to his personal life. So remember, Queen Victoria on the throne from the 1830s to 1901, the Victorian era. Then Bertie comes in from 1901 to 1910, and it is all parties, all celebration, Bertie is older, he's raucous, he's been the charmed prince from day one. So in this time, we've gone from Victorian to Edwardian. But when King George V takes over, when Bertie dies, again, polar opposite. The popularity and acceptance of the Edwardian era, all the raucous parties, all the country party house weekends abruptly come to an end. King George V and his wife, Queen Mary, were austere. They were formal. They were quite imperious. Hmm. They are far more Victorian than Edwardian. And here, society had to adjust. Interesting. So London and the English country homes are no longer the ideal scene. They're not the place for the upper classes to enjoy themselves with the same abandon and Joie de vivre that was encouraged during the lifetime of Bertie. The party doesn't stop. It just changes locations. We're still going to party. We just can't do it here in London and in England anymore. Do you think part of this was just because Bertie's reputation was such like he was Albert the Caresser or whatever? Is that was that one of his names? Like, do you think George was just trying to kind of put a little little polish back on the monarchy. Absolutely. Okay. But you can also look, I mean, you've got the 1910s and 1920s, 1930s in London filled with political upheaval. Mm-hmm. You have your bright young things. You have your Mitford sisters. Like you, 
There's certainly stuff happening in London and England, but that aristocratic set phasing out there, moving to a different locale. So the Chateau de la Horizon was completed in 1932. And immediately, whoa, we got a party house on the French Riviera, Maxine, Birdie's Girl? This is great. It immediately becomes the setting for lavish and decadent parties and all the house guests. King George V will pass away in 1936. The Chateau opens 1932. George V dies four years later. So when George V dies, it ushers in a whole new regime and international scandal because who comes next? King Edward VIII and his soon-to-be wife, Wallace Simpson, mm -hmm. who would become some of Maxine's most frequent and esteemed guests. Unmarried and married. There's sure. a lot happening here. Post-abdication, etc. Between World War I and World War II, Maxine Elliott would be the most sought-after hostess on the French Riviera, and her list of visitors and friends really does read like a who's who of the rich, the famous, the powerful. Some of her first and most frequent guests at the Chateau were Cecil Beaton, Doris Castle Ross, Beatrice Guinness, Kimmy Mosley, and her sister Irene Curzon. Kimmy Mosley, who was pregnant at the time, actually learned of her husband's latest affair, who was with Diana Mitford while staying at the Chateau with Maxine. So Maxine in the 30s, a lot of her friends are now dead or dying. Maxine sort of becomes a den mother to this younger generation of aristocrats and royalty. She was no less in demand as a hostess and confidant, but her role shifted from the young, beautiful actress and has morphed instead into a mentor, a friend. Winston Churchill would come visit with his wife Clementine and their children. He was a frequent visitor. Winston, though, would often return to the chateau when he needed a break from the political ups and downs in his life. It was also where Winston allegedly engaged in his only extramarital affair with Lady Doris Castleross. Mrs. Churchill, mm -hmm. Clementine, did not really enjoy the French Riviera in the same way that her husband did. Especially not after that. Well, and definitely grew to disapprove of Maxine and her chateau. This also, side reason, this also may have been in part because of the activities of their son, Randolph. Because Randolph gets up to some bad behavior at the chateau as well. But Clementine, Churchill doesn't like how Winston behaves there either. It's just, it's a land of lawlessness. Clementine Churchill once said that the French Riviera, quote unquote, epitomized the shallowest side of her husband's nature. Again, Randolph Churchill spends a great deal of time himself at the Chateau, and Randolph was kind of a directionless young man who indulged in whatever his family's name and status could provide the French Riviera is an ideal playground for Randy. Other visitors to Maxine's place included Prime Minister David Lloyd George, Pablo Picasso, the Aga Khan, Deborah Mitford, Duchess of Devonshire, Clark Gable, George Bernard Shaw, Fruity Metcalf, I love when we get a Fruity Metcalf in, Consuelo Vanderbilt, Duchess of Marlborough, list goes on and on. 
three of Maxine Elliott's most frequent female guests were known in high society as the three D's. Lady Diana Cooper, Lady Doris Castle Ross, and Daisy Fellows. We're going to take a break here and we're going to come back and talk about the three D's. Oh my, the three D's. These ladies aren't necessarily royal. They got a lot attached to them. It's a tiny world in the upper echelons of high society. Nowhere close to six degrees of separation. It's like half a degree of separation. Let's talk about the three Ds who make their way into history. We're going to start with, I think, my favorite, Lady Doris Castle Ross. Lady Doris was considered to be one of the greatest beauties of her time. Her legs were said to be as famous as Marlena Daytrix and Betty Grable's. Lady Doris was outrageous. She was shameless in her behavior. She loved to make scenes in public places. Lady Doris was once referred to as, quote, an enchantress with a jester's cap of pure gold hair, unquote. Good quote. Doris began her early career as a model in London and declared that, in fact, she was going to marry a lord, which she eventually did. Doris marries Viscount Castle Ross. His name is Valentine Brown. He is the fifth Earl of Kenmare in 1928. Before Doris married, though, she was pampered by a series of wealthy men in exchange for her company. <laughs> One of these men was American millionaire Stephen Sanford. He goes by the nickname of Laddie. Laddie is heir to the Bigelow Sanford Carpet Company, and he's an American polo champion. Sounds like a pony boy to me. That he was. Laddie Sanford was married to American actress Mary Duncan, whom he was introduced to at a polo match by no less than the lover of William Randolph Hearst, Marion Davies. But no problem for Laddie. He is going to set Doris, Castle Ross, up in a nice house in Mayfair and give her a Rolls Royce and lavish jewels. And that affair with Doris and Laddie was going great until Laddie fell into bed with Edwina Mountbatten, Countess of Burma. The Mountbattens are coming. Mm -hmm. What a tale. Now, Lady Doris, her first husband, Valentine Brown, fifth Earl of Kenmare. I need to tell you that Viscount Castle Ross was vastly overweight. He was boisterous. He's eccentric. And although he's an English lord, Viscount Castle Ross is also a leading gossip society columnist for the newspapers of Lord Beaverbrook. This is my favorite story you just, ever. You just love saying these outlandish names. Castle Ross was really popular among British folks for making fun of the pomposity and hypocrisy of high society. And a little marriage for Lady Doris isn't going to discourage her from using sex to get what she wants from men. Her blatant promiscuity was constant. One of Doris's first lovers after this marriage to Viscount Castle Ross was with Tom Mitford, the only brother of the famous Mitford sisters. Doris, though, realizes pretty quickly that Tom Mitford is not a very wealthy man and she will move on. Doris's next steamy affair was with Randolph Churchill Jr., who Doris will nickname Fuzzy Wuzzy. 
Most of this scandalous affair takes place at the Chateau. Doris and her husband, Valentine Brown, fight constantly. One time, the Viscount had to have his leg bandaged after Doris bit him during a fight. So, not great. And don't be fooled, Valentine Brown is not faithful either. But he becomes embarrassed by how public and out there Doris's infidelities are. Apparently, among Doris's other lovers were Cecil Beaton, whose affair with Doris was his first and I think only heterosexual experience. Doris also had a lesbian affair with a wealthy American. Her name was Margot Hoffman. And here at the Chateau, Doris also allegedly embarked on her affair with Winston Churchill, who now would be the father of her former lover, Mm. Fuzzy Wuzzy. You raise a good point. Although Winston Churchill was far more faithful than most husbands of that time, his long-term aide and private secretary, Jacques Coville, confirmed the affair. Coville said in 1985 that Churchill, quote-unquote, did one terrible thing. Coville adds, he wasn't highly sexed, and I don't think he slipped up except once, an affair with Doris Castle Ross. Coville described to interviewers that Churchill had an affair quote-unquote, by moonlight in the south of France. Which is, if you're going to have an affair, do it by moonlight in the south of France. Doris does have a difficult time adjusting to the societal changes during World War II. She's aging. She's no longer very socially in demand. Lady Doris Castle Ross will overdose on sleeping pills at the Dorchester Hotel in London and dies at the age of 42. Oh my, Lady Doris, what a life, what a legend. Let's talk about our next D up. You ready for Daisy Fellows? Sure. Daisy Fellows is an heiress to the Singer Sewing Machine fortune. Hmm. I think you talked about Isaac Singer within Trashy Divorces once. Isaac Merritt Singer and, yeah, the coach Chase when his wife caught him with one of his many other wives. (laughs) Forgot about that. I think Isaac Singer had something like 28 kids. Daisy Fellows, one of the inheritors of that Singer sewing machine fortune money. Daisy, though, way more than just an heiress. She was also an accomplished writer and eventually becomes an editor at Harper's Bazaar. Daisy Fellows will marry first to a French prince. Her second husband is Reggie Fellows a wealthy aristocratic banker and cousin of Winston Churchill. Reggie Fellows, for his part, was also a former lover of Consuelo Vanderbilt, Duchess of Marlborough. Daisy Fellows, unlike Doris, who used sex in exchange for money and power and gifts, Daisy didn't need to do that. She was already incredibly wealthy and powerful in her own right. It is speculated that Daisy Fellows' lovers numbered in the hundreds, and her obsessive sexual needs are often attributed to straight-up nymphomania. It's called Trashy Royals. Daisy would smoke opium and sniff cocaine prior to sex in order to relieve herself of any inhibitions she may have had that would hinder her full enjoyment of that sexual experience. Sometimes it goes wrong. Daisy Fellows once invited Winston Churchill back to her room after dinner, in order for him to, quote-unquote, see her little child. 
Winston, having a four-year-old daughter at the time himself, says, I would love to come and meet your little child. And when Winston arrived, the little child was Daisy Fellows, lying naked on a tiger skin. Hmm. Winston was apparently very amused, but declined the invitation. One more D, one more D. Oh, Diana Cooper. Diana Cooper is the Edwardian it girl. She is an inspiration for novelists of the time when we talk about that bright young thing set, the hip, the hop of London in this time. Lady Diana Cooper is an inspiration for novelists Evelyn Waugh and Nancy Mitford both. Lady Diana Cooper was called the most beautiful girl in the world. She was the most popular debutante of her day. Cecil Beaton likened Lady Diana Cooper to Helen of Troy and Cleopatra. Now, Lady Diana Cooper, esteemed pedigree, she's the daughter of the Duke and Duchess of Rutland. A marriage between Lady Diana Cooper and Prince Edward was in consideration for a time, but Diana finds the Prince of Wales dull. This would be Edward VIII. He's so dull, and she prefers her group of friends that are known as the Coterie, an intellectual and artistic group of aristocrats who she finds far more interesting. The Coterie lives, I think, before the Bright Young Things. There are a few of these social sets in London. Lady Diana turns down future Eddie VIII to marry diplomat Duff Cooper. And the Coopers, Lady Diana and Duff, were very popular. They're really powerful as a society couple goes. These two had different ways of going about things. Lady Diana is super important to the social scene during her time, but Lady Diana is mostly discreet about any affairs she has. Her husband, Duff, not. (laughs) Not discreet at all. The opposite of discreet. I mean, at this point in the story, I just feel like the most appropriate place name that you've used is Rutland. Tell me about Duff's non-discreet affairs. Well, he, he he's like Billboard. He announces them everywhere. And Lady Diana knows of Duff's many affairs, but claims not to care because she knows he's devoted to her and loved her. About her husband's frequent lovers, Lady Diana once said, they were the flowers, but I was the tree. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not anything for these couples. Like Once you have the sun, once you have the air, maybe a spare. Everybody goes and has their fun. Country house parties, right? They were the flowers, but I was the tree. Duff Cooper, for his part, had an impressive political career, and it will keep this couple at the center of powerful circles with access to glamorous wealthy, and royal people. Duff Cooper was a member of Parliament, the First Lord of the Admiralty, Secretary of State for War, British Ambassador to France, and was made first Viscount Norwich in recognition to his service to England. Now, despite Lady Diana, in her earlier impetuous youth, having zero desire to marry Prince Edward, Duff and Diana remain close friends with Edward and his lover and wife, Wallace, throughout their lives. In fact, the Coopers were with Edward and Wallace on that 1936 yacht cruise that makes Wallace and Edward's relationship public 
and sets the abdication in motion. One of the most notable lovers of Duff Cooper was Gloria Guinness, one of Truman Capote's swans, about who Duff wrote, quote, I don't think I've ever loved anybody physically so much or been so supremely satisfied, unquote. This is another love affair that primarily takes place on the French Riviera. Don't worry, though. Duff has so many lovers. Another notable affair was with American socialite Susan Mary Alsup. That one lasts until his death. They have an illegitimate child. Some of his other serial philandering was with the previously mentioned Daisy Fellows, Princess Ghislaine, the wife of Prince Edmund de Polignac, French novelist Louise de Vilmorin. The list of his lovers would be long. Again, Lady Diana's response was not jealousy, but actually to become friends with her husband's lovers. Hmm. Kept him close. Wallace, the Duchess of Windsor, once quipped that <laughs> she would never have an affair with Duff because it would mean having Diana around the house day and night being nice to her. <laughs> Quote. Oh, so much trashy. We're not quite done with D's. We've got some more duchesses and political dynasties to weave our way through in this episode. Let's take a quick break and come back in a moment with the rest of the story of the Chateau. We have been talking about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Let's go ahead and weave them into our tale at the Chateau de la Horizon. It is in 1936 that the newly crowned King Edward VIII decided he would stay at the Chateau de la Horizon for the entire month. <laughs> Those in the know know that the still-married Wallace Simpson would be joining Eddie for the month. When that news leaks to the press, Edward and Wallace leave the chateau and embark on this yacht cruise with the Coopers. The press naturally follows them, and the relationship between the married Wallace Simpson and King Edward VIII was made public. The Duke and Duchess of Windsor really are the gift that keep on giving. Okay, let's talk about the chateau and enter in its new owner. Ali Khan. What? The Chateau's history doesn't stop when Maxine Elliott passes away in 1940. When Maxine passes away in 1940, for the next few years, the Chateau was actually taken and occupied by Nazis. In the mid-1940s, though, the Chateau de la Horizon was purchased by Prince Ali Khan, who had been a frequent guest of Maxine's back in the 1930s. Prince Ali Khan, international playboy who had been a frequent guest of Maxine's for the decade before. Prince Ali Khan will keep the chateau in the center of society and press attention. New owner, same party. When Prince Ali Khan marries Rita Hayworth in 1949, post her divorce from Orson Welles, this wedding reception was held at the Chateau de la Horizon. Floral arrangements with thousands of white roses and carnations of the couple's initials were floating in the pool during the reception. On the terrace, there were magnums of pink champagne that flowed like waterfalls. Prince Ali Khan's father, the Aga Khan, was heard muttering, Too much caviar, Rita. Too much caviar. Probably also don't take a black light into the bedrooms. <laughs> 
<laughs> when Prince Ali Khan died in a car accident in 1960, his remains were temporarily interred in the garden of the chateau. His remains were ultimately transferred to a mausoleum in Syria in 1972. So we talked about some duchesses. I said I had another D here. Let's talk about dynasties and the political dynasties. What story is complete without our trashy royalty over here of the United States, the Kennedy family? Hmm. Chateau de la Horizon plays host to the Kennedys as well. And again, so many spiderwebs. You ready? Ooh, this one involves one of our good friends and previous Trashy Divorces alums, Pamela Churchill Hayward Harriman. So while the chateau was doubtless the setting for many love triangles, one of the more famous and trashy ones was the love triangle between Prince Ali Khan, Rita Hayworth, and Pamela Churchill. This is getting dicey. It's not a great situation, but no worries. Prince Ali Khan knows who to call to fix this tricky predicament. Who does Ali Khan call? Renowned French Riviera heartbreaker, Gianni Agnelli. I love this story. So Pamela Churchill is a frequent house guest at the Chateau, and she gets along great with the Aga Khan, Prince Ali's father, just like she got along great with Winston Churchill, her father-in-law. Pamela had divorced here from Randolph Jr., Fuzzy Wuzzy, and all of Pamela's wartime romances were kind of in the past. Prince Ali and Pamela had met in 1947 at the Royal Ascot, where Pamela attends the Royal Ascot that year with her good friend, Kick Kennedy. Prince Ali Khan and Pamela get along so well, they're really attracted to each other, it's not long before Prince Ali Khan begins inviting Pamela to stay at his chateau. Pamela was unbothered that Prince Ali Khan was still married to the wife that he hadn't divorced yet so he could marry Rita Hayworth. I think we've established that none of these people are bothered by the marital status of other people. Clearly. So both of Pamela's biographies talk about her fascination, and addiction to Prince Ali Khan's prolonged lovemaking. Prince Ali's biographers explain that when he went to Cairo as a teenager, he underwent some sexual teaching. Mystical mm -hmm. tantric training or something. Yeah, a Persian Hakim will teach Prince Ali how to delay his sexual climax almost indefinitely. The sexual technique supposedly originated in India, the land of the Kama Sutra. During the 1947 and 1948 season, though, Pamela was the almost exclusive female guest of the prince. Now, in May 1948, Kit Kennedy and her fiancé, Peter Fitzwilliam, were staying at the chateau with Pamela and Prince Ali. Kit had recently flown to America to tell her family about her engagement to Peter Fitzwilliam and her wish to marry. Upon return, Kit had confided in her friend Pamela that that discussion with the Kennedy family had not gone well, and that her parents, Joe and Rose Kennedy, were refusing to give their blessing because Peter Fitzwilliam was a Protestant. Kit was a Catholic, but that wasn't the only problem. 
Peter Fitzwilliam, to your point, is also married. <laughs> well. Rose Kennedy is apoplectic. You think? And threatened to completely disown her daughter, Kick, if she goes through with the marriage. Kick's father, Joe Kennedy, wasn't happy, but had privately agreed to try to get a papal dispensation from the Vatican for the marriage. Kick and Peter were leaving Paris to meet Joe Kennedy to discuss a plan for how this is going to happen. And then Kick and Peter were going to go to Cannes. Kick invited Pamela to go with them, but Pamela couldn't because of prior commitments. Pamela will, however, drive Kick and Peter to the airport and watch their chartered de Havilland Dove airplane take off into the skies for a bright future for Art Kick Kennedy. Later, Pamela would hear the tragic news that they had flown into the side of a mountain during a thunderstorm, killing both Kick Kennedy and Peter Fitzwilliam instantly. Distraught by the loss of her friend, Pamela decided to stay at the chateau a little longer than expected, and here Pamela and Prince Ali Khan grow closer. Pamela acts and really was accepted as the unofficial hostess of the chateau for a long time. Pamela runs the household. She's really good at it. Prince Ali Khan appreciates Pamela's attention to detail, all of the style she has. She's been the daughter-in-law of the prime minister. Of course she knows how to run a household. Mm -hmm. Pamela, though, would soon be replaced by a newly divorced Rita Hayworth. Surprisingly, though, Pamela doesn't take the news too hard, especially when she heard that she was welcome to stay on at the Chateau de la Horizon while Prince Ali and Rita Hayworth were off falling in love there, too. Prince Ali Khan had reportedly been obsessed with Rita Hayworth, her movies. She's at the height of her fame right now with the newly released Gilda. After taking Rita on a date to a bullfight one night where she was cheered on by the crowds and dances a flamingo, Prince Ali Khan's just done. He's like, mm -hmm. pick me up off the floor, Rita Hayworth. Yep. Prince Ali Khan will whisper in his chauffeur's ear this night. Because remember, he's married. <laughs> I'm getting a divorce. Oh, I'm going to marry Rita. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, Prince Ali had left Pamela in charge of the chateau, where she had really kind of set up a nice little routine for herself. She'd have breakfast, then go into town to visit the hairdresser, shop a little, meet a friend for lunch. She'd come back, swim, relax on the beach. One afternoon, while Pamela is sunbathing, she hears the engine of a motorboat switch off and realizes someone has just parked at the chateau's jetty. She looks up and sees the most beautiful man she'd ever seen, quote-unquote, emerge from the steps. And here, tall, muscular, tan, with dark, curly hair, God of the Sea walks up to Pamela and introduces himself as Giovanni Agnelli, but said, just call me Gianni. Pamela and Gianni Agnelli are instantly attracted to each other. They would end up spending the next five years together, and Pamela would fall deeply in love with Gianni Agnelli. The two acted as a married couple. They traveled together. Pamela is put in charge of all of Agnelli's homes, which she redecorates. She does all the entertaining in. 
Pamela, bless her little heart, even converts to Catholicism with the fervent hope that Gianni Agnelli is going to marry her. In the end, that will not be the case because there's no way Gianni Agnelli is going to marry a divorced woman. He would go on to marry Catholic, Italian virgin, and future swan of Truman Capote, Morella Agnelli, and that is another story all together. I can't believe we've located a virgin in this story. Well, virgin, quote unquote. Morella Agnelli, her story is over at Done and Done. We've covered most of Truman Capote's swans. We have a few more little stories that do all come back around because we are not quite done with the Kennedys and the Chateau. In 1958, moving our timeline a little bit ahead here, Chateau still owned by Prince Ali Khan, but in 1958, the marriage of John and Jacqueline Kennedy was in serious trouble. And at this time, Jacqueline is threatening divorce. The couple will end up staying at the Chateau while each of their fathers get together to discuss the state of the marriage between Jack and Jackie. This seems like the worst place to plop down JFK. Well, mm, so... (laughs) I mean, could you find looser socialites? Probably not. Jacqueline's sister, Lee, who at this point is married to Michael Canfield. That story is coming. Michael and Lee are renting a house in Antibes, and Jacqueline had gone there to stay with them for a while. The Kennedy marriage is at a breaking point. Mm, Why? Because of Jack's frequent infidelities, but also because of Jacqueline's excessive spending habits. When in Antibes, Jacqueline has told her friends and family that she has zero intention of returning to Jack. She's done. Done with the marriage. Jack Kennedy flies in from Sweden, where he had been with his most recent latest girl. I was going to say. This is Swedish Gunilla von Post. Joe Kennedy had been vacationing at a rented villa in nearby Cannes. Joe Kennedy gets wind of this. Jackie's in Antibes. Jack's with him. Joe Kennedy fit to be tied. He knows a divorce is going to ruin Jack's chances at becoming president. Joe Kennedy is refusing to even discuss the possibility. So Joe Kennedy calls Blackjack Bouvier. (laughs) Hey, Blackjack, you need to get here right now so we can talk about what can possibly be done to patch up this marriage. Jack and Jackie want absolutely no part of their own marriage crisis intervention and negotiation. They accept Prince Ali Khan's invitation to take over the Churchill suite at the Chateau. Right? Change out the beds. Good Lord, the Churchills. <laughs> Jack and Jacqueline stay for several weeks and somehow agree upon a plan to move forward and stay married. Now, during their time in this year at the Chateau, Prince Ali Khan told the Kennedys to feel free to invite whatever friends they have there to stay with them. The Kennedys will invite playwright and former politician William Douglas Home and his wife Rachel. Douglas Home had been a boyfriend of Kick Kennedy once upon a time and had been friends with Jack since their days at Harvard. Later, (laughs) William Douglas Home would recall his time at the Chateau as taking private planes for a day trip to Venice, dinners with the former wife of the Shah of Persia, and Gianni Agnelli, 
zooming in on his powerboat to take Jacqueline, Lee, and Rachel water skiing. Prince Ali Khan will arrange for the whole group to dine on a pretty famous yacht called the Christina with his big friend Aristotle Onassis. Jack Kennedy had expressed a desire to meet his friend Winston Churchill, who was now 83 years old and spending a few days relaxing on Aristotle Onassis's yacht. Jack, really excited to meet his hero, Winston mm-hmm. Churchill. He wears a white tuxedo, which unbeknownst to Jack Kennedy, is an outfit that Winston Churchill strongly dislikes. <laughs> of course. Jacqueline, on the other hand, with her summer on the French Riviera, she's deeply tanned. She wears a simple A-line dress. She looks like the picture of elegance. She speaks fluent French during dinner, charming the not literal but figurative pants off both Winston Churchill and Aristotle Onassis. Jack Kennedy, in his white dinner jacket, comes home. He's pretty disappointed by the lack of impression he made on Winston Churchill. William Douglas Homer calls Jack complaining about it to his wife and hearing Jacqueline say victoriously, I think he thought you were a waiter. (laughs) Zing. Another recollection of Douglas Home was hearing a conversation between Michael Canfield and Jack Kennedy, with Michael Canfield, Jack's brother-in-law, saying, I just can't understand why you want to be president. <laughs> and JFK responding, well, Mike, I guess it's just about the only thing I can do. If you could handle it, I got one more story with a different kind of American royalty. We go from the Kennedys to... She of the violet eyes herself, Elizabeth Taylor. In 1959, Elizabeth Taylor was staying at the Chateau, recovering from the death of her husband, Mike Todd. Elizabeth had flown into Paris for a shopping trip. When she runs in, when she runs into Eddie Fisher. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Remember Eddie Fisher has yep. idolized Mike Todd for a long, long time. And also is married. Problematically to Debbie Reynolds. I mean, again, not problematic for any of these people, although problematic for Debbie Reynolds. Problematic for Debbie Reynolds, bless her heart. It is here at the Chateau that Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher fall in love and naturally the press, Hungry Hungry Hippos, They hear about Eddie Fisher filing for divorce, and now Elizabeth and Eddie cannot escape the paparazzi. For a bit of a reprieve, Eddie and Elizabeth fly to Cannes. They become virtual captives at the Carlton Hotel when the paparazzi follows them. Ali Khan and his current fiancé at the time, in 1959, because he and Rita Hayworth have gone bust by this point, Ali Khan and his fiancée, Bettina Graziani, were walking by the Carlton one day when they see the paparazzi harassing Elizabeth and Eddie. They extend an invitation for them to come and get peace and privacy at the Chateau, which is where Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher will wait out the scandalous media storm shielded within the bounds of the Art Deco Palace. It is in 1979 that the heir to the Saudi throne... Future King Fahd 
purchased the Chateau de la Horizon and has made significant changes and additions to the Chateau in his ownership. It looks very different now. It is no longer the classically understated villa that Maxine Elliott built. The Saudi royal family has made it into something that is a little bit more monstrous. It's not quite the place it used to be, the gathering place for the glamorous and wealthy set. But oh my, all of its history and allure remains. Well, I hope the first thing he did was replace all the mattresses. I'm certain he did. If you happen to be in the French Riviera, sure. the only way you're going to be able to see the Chateau de la Horizon now is from a boat. The walls are up. It's fairly well inclusive mm-hmm. at this point. But wowza, y'all, so much trashy packed into one little tiny art deco of a place. This episode is the stuff of my dreams. With so many trashy royals attached and trashy divorces and done and done spinoffs, I love the story. It really does all come together. As for trashy crowns in this one, it's impossible to count. They might need to be rated on an individual basis when we get to all of those people's stories. They all need a thorough cleaning. (laughs) You're not kidding. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this Home for the Holidays. Chateau de la Horizon, Trashy Spectacular here on Trashy Royals. Again, so many attached spiderwebs from our three podcast labors of love. We are dropping it like it's hot all the time around this place. I mean, we promised betters behaving badly. There it is. So many. Just, that's a wallop of a story, right? Yeah, that's like the hypocrisy and pomposity of the aristocracy. Chateau de la Horizon, what a home. Friends, thank you everybody for joining us this week on Trashy Royals. Thank you for your kind emails, your support over on patreon.com slash Trashy Royals podcast. Hanging out with us, being awesome, your kind ratings and reviews. I hope you are having a great week home for the holidays. Keep your eye on the throne. Break out a bottle of hand sanitizer and just just <laughs> soak in it. Wishing you the happiest of the beginning of holiday seasons from us at Trashy Royals to your trashy heart. I think the throne lived at the Chateau for a long time. It's wow, that story. Thanks again, everybody. Big love. Bye. Bye.